Welcome to the CSU special. Before I get started, I'd like to talk to you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th and Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Um, right now, uh, restrictions are being eased a bit. Um, personally, I'm not comfortable with going down there, so I go to bfwdenver.com if I want a glass of wine, if I want to get like a couple bottles. To me, that's the safer way to do it. But if you are one of those people that's either vaccinated or uh, comfortable enough to do safe, socially distanced dining, go down to the dairy block outside, socially distant, to be able to try whatever wines they've got down there. They've got Pinot. They've got, like I said, the 2017 Cabernet. They've got um, anything that you would want, up to and including partnerships with Western Slope wineries that are really, really good. Um, they also have virtual wine tastings down at bfwdenver.com. I would highly suggest you check, check that out. Um, other than that, uh, it's just everything that you've heard me say in these last several hundred podcasts I've been talking about Blanchard is down there and they will love your business because it's local Colorado business and sl small businesses really need your support right now. Once again, they're located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field right in the middle of the dairy block. Go to bfwdenver.com to order your bottle or get whatever they have on the website available, including a virtual wine tasting. When you go in or talk to them, tell them Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast sent you there. is up everybody thank you all for joining me on the latest csg special i am of course your host jeff morton with me today as as a return slot uh, my my esteemed and bearded guest uh former drummer of the black crows current drummer of trigger hippie author of hard to handle life and death of the black crows a book i highly recommend you can pick it up wherever you uh can get your books uh, it is my friend, Steve Gorman. Hello, Steve. How are you? Jeff, I'm well, sir. How are you today? Oh, I am good. I, we're, I'm done shoveling about, you know, three feet of snow, which we, we, we got our once in an every 15 years big spring snow. So uh, Very nice. that's, that's been fun. I'm, aren't you glad that you don't have to experience that in Nashville? Yeah. Uh, I'm glad that we experience it every couple of years briefly. <laughs> we do, we do get it. Uh, it's just not something we can, we can count on. You know, we don't set our watch by when the next snow is going to come. Uh, but you know, right now we're getting inundated, inundated with, uh, you know, March rain, which is pretty standard for this, for this area. Right. Um, there's a voice in the back of my head telling me this would be a great time to seed my lawn, but that hasn't happened yet. Well, <laughs> always a good time, particularly during this time of year. Um, they uh, definitely want you to do, uh, we need James Whitmore to be talking about, uh, what was it, uh, Scott's, or something like that, the turf builder that he used yeah. to do. Well, hang on, uh, let me shoot him a text. Let's okay, see if we yeah. can get him in there. <laughs> uh, Steve, thank you for coming on again. I appreciate it. And of course, I have spent the last, since you and I have agreed to do this, I've been spent racking my brain trying to, thinking of, trying to think of things that you haven't been asked already, right? Mm -hmm. because you have done many an interview and I'm sure you get the same goddamn questions over and over and over again. And I would like to not subject you to that sort of thing. I appreciate the effort, my man. <laughs> so this is, uh, but you know, but this is your world. If, if you ask a question I've already been asked, I'm, I'm going to do my best to make sure you don't feel that thing inside me. That's just like, oh, Jesus again, not, you know, I'm a pro, man. I'll muscle through it. Okay, good. Um, first off, uh, I, I, one question that came from uh, David Hudson that he wanted me to ask you was, then uh, this is completely random and it's not going to go with the subject or the rest of this podcast, but he's, he's been dying to know if that, you know, that false start that you guys have at the beginning of midnight from the inside out on Lions? He said, mm -hmm. was, he, he wants to know if that was intentional. He, this is very, oh, it's no. been in his head. No, 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 that's, 
not at all. That's just one of those things that when you go back, you do it and then you listen back and it was just a, uh, Oh, that's pretty cool. Let's just leave that in. You know, it's, it's that, that those kind of things, uh, when we, there were a handful of things, I think over the years, you can see where there was a, 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 an attempt to do something cool. It never works. You just got to do it. You, you can't plan those things. Right. Uh, I, th- I don't think we're, we were never good at, at, at inventing moments. They just happened or they didn't. Uh, well, and, and the, most of the, the best stuff comes obvi- obviously organically, as they say. So sure. uh, if, if you're going to have a moment like this, it's cool. It's a cool part to, the, to that album. And, you know, it actually got me thinking, you know, I don't spend a ton of time thinking about obviously um, that era from you guys, I do listen to the albums a lot, but it doesn't occupy my mind as much as the classic era. Mm-hmm. But um, I kept thinking about producers and you guys worked with Don Was on that album. And uh, you, di- you didn't really cover this in your book, but I, 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 I think this is something that's always been curious to me about the way you guys shaped your music uh, in the process of it is that you guys worked with a lot of good producers, George Reculius, uh, Jack Joseph Puig, Kevin Shirley, Don Was, and even up to uh, uh, Paul Stacy for uh, uh, who I, I thought did a good job on your mm-hmm. uh, War Paint album. Um, how much do the producers make a difference in how you sound? Because the interesting thing to me about Lions was uh, Rich did an interview. Rich Robinson did an interview a couple of years ago where he mentioned that Was wasn't there that much. Uh, during the actual recording of it, would you would you kind of give an idea of what that means? Or, or well, if, I, if I, he he might have been speaking figuratively. I mean, I I, I don't remember being getting a lot of Don. I don't remember doing much without Don in the room, you know. But um, yeah. at the same time, I had coffee with Don. Now it's probably been four or five years, um, and he Don has is now well over a decade sober and when we, the first time i saw him after he got clean he was in the midst of a bit of a tour if you will getting in touch with people and saying hey sorry uh we had a great time with don or i should say i had a great time with don i enjoyed his company um but he you know and he full-on said like man I, I don't even really remember much about making that record uh, but you know, for, for where he was, as far as we knew, he was present. The one, I remember one specific conversation with Don, we were in a rehearsal studio on the, uh, on the West side of Manhattan called Montana. And that's right. where the, we first started recording what we thought were demos. We just set up a little portable studio there. Mm-hmm. And a few of them, I think that's where greasy grass river came from. There's a few songs on the album where the tracks are from the rehearsal studio. And we were really vibing well there. We had a really good flow going. And we were getting ready to move downtown to the studio where we made Lions. And I remember Don just looked at me one day. He goes, are we making a mistake? Should we, should we stay here? And I said, yeah, but it's a pretty cool room we're going to go to. I'm sure we'll recapture something different. That we'll get something different that will be just as cool. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know if we did or didn't, but I remember at the time, you know, and I only mentioned that story because, you know, Don's telling me, I don't remember. It was all hazy, but he was clearly aware of the vibe in that room was really clicking. You know what I mean? And right. he did have a lot of suggestions. I mean, I talked with him about my playing a lot and it was never him saying, do this or don't do that. It was just very theoretical. Like, this is what, this is what I love about certain drummers and drums and the vibe. And this is, this is when I think something works. It accomplishes this and this and this. And, you know, we had a lot of those kind of conversations. Now what he did, in terms of for crafting the songs, you know, there, with if 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 it was just him and the brothers, and I wasn't there, there's no telling because I wasn't there. But um, right, right. you know, I I don't recall him being superior hands-on guy. You know, some people come in and they just dip into every element of a record. That was not his vibe at all. Don's thing was, I'm going to hang out with the band, and I'm just going to I'm going to find my spot, and I'll just be another band member. You know what I mean? I think he approached things like that. You know, it's interesting. Pretty ethereal. Be- pretty yeah. ethereal situation with him you know the interesting thing about it is uh he also produced uh voodoo lounge if i remember correctly mm-hmm. um and that sounds nothing like lions i mean it is as far as production goes not not the yeah. actual sound of the band yeah and uh the interesting thing about that is i i listen to lions and i think boy that's a lot of the production wise it's a it's a lot different there's a signature sound i guess with every producer like kevin shirley 
hard, you know, snare, mm-hmm. very present snare yeah. sound that he got, particularly on "By Your Side," um, and which is different from what Paul Stacy did with you on uh, "War Paint," which I think Stacy got some good natural drum sound from you mm-hmm. on uh, particularly. Well, 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 "War Paint," "War Paint," and "By Your Side" were also recorded by a whole band in a room. Lions was me and Rich putting down basic tracks and then him going over and overdubbing and then bringing in guests. I mean, it's a very different thing when you have, uh, and, and just, you know, I, I haven't thought about lions in that, that linear sense in a while, but I think that, you know, we, our approach was just, let's just try anything that comes to mind. You know, nothing's after, after by your side, which was a very much a, this is going down one straight fast lane. Uh, because we felt, we felt, you know, we were trapped and, and that wasn't by your side, wasn't the record we would have made. Otherwise we'd already made band. And if we hadn't lost a third of the band, but you know, in the summer of 97, that would have been the record that we were, were willing to die on a hill for. But, you know, once Mark and Johnny left, once we found out we were literally stuck at Columbia with no options and a guy that would not let us go for any reason, you know, we were like, well, let's figure out what we need to do to get out of here. Uh, that said, I, I really enjoyed making By Your Side. Kevin Shirley, to this day, is a good friend of mine, and I think he's a great producer. And there was a, that was the only record we ever made where we were aware of there's a specific, there's something we have to do here. Like it, and it isn't just the record we're going to make. It's we have to make a type of record. Um, and it was a very calculated thing that, that failed because, like I said, we're not good at, we weren't good at calculation. I mean, we didn't know how else to get out of that. Um, and, and, and frankly, we could, we tried and we were told not a chance in hell, you're going to turn in a record and it's going to be with a guy that we like and they liked Kevin and, and, you know, so, but you know, it's funny because originally Kevin was going to record the follow-up to by your side too. And that was already, those conversations were already, this is going to be a totally different record. We were going to go set up in his house out on long Island and we were going to have a much looser, you know, it wasn't going to be under the Columbia uh, mindset. So we were looking forward to working with Kevin in, in a very different, you know, I think had we done a record with him, it would have been an entirely different thing than by your side. And it would have been a very different record than what lions turned out to be. But, you know, I mean, I mean, some producers do just have a sound. I mean, you know, right. they do have their thing, but, but I think, I think more often than not, most people just, they, you know, a lot of producers take a band and they look at, well, what did you do last time? Let's do something different. Some producers come in and say, well, what worked? Let's recreate that. I mean, everybody's got their own sort of sense of what they want to do, how they want to impact a project for an artist, you know. Uh, but, you know, that's and, – and every every one of those people is different. I actually – the one of the reasons I brought this up, because in your book you talked about Bren, uh, Brendan O'Brien and mm-hmm. kind of that 93, 94 period where uh, – you know, and you guys ended up with Jack Joseph Puig. Yeah. And I look at it and, you know, and I think, I think, oh, Brennan O'Brien's done the last three ACDC albums, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very distinctive, very rock sound. He's very good at rock. He's very good. Of course, you know, all those Pearl Jam albums that he did. And it, when you think about that period of time and not necessarily in a missed opportunity sense, but have you ever gone back and think, thought, what would Amorica have sounded like or even oh, yeah. if it was, if it was Brennan O'Brien who was doing it? Instead well, of yeah. I mean, I, I, my personal thoughts in the summer of 93, when we were finishing the Southern Harmony tour, uh, it was, I, I, I would have said, let's just keep working with George. Uh, that's just my, you know, he's great. He, yeah. he understands the band on a, on a, you know, on a DNA level. That wasn't an option. Um, you know, Chris had decided he wouldn't do that. And so to me, it was like, well, then Brendan's the obvious choice. He engineered both our records. We did that session at Lanois play, you know, you played the fear years that's in a studio with Brendan. Mm-hmm. Brendan had done Pearl jam. He did STP. He did. I mean, if you look at his, he's arguably the biggest rock producer of the last 30 years. I mean, right. Springsteen and Neil Young and train and, you know, all those artists don't sound alike. His records don't sound alike. You know I mean? Right. You can find a million different things that he's done. Um, I was all for that. I thought because the stuff like that fear years exit bewildered, I, that, that was to me, that's when the band had fully that set of songs that were written right after we turned in Southern harmony 
that we put together on the initial couple months of the tour for Southern Harmony, I always felt like that was, okay, this is the most, we, this is us now. Like this is us not trying to get, get somewhere, not trying to get away from some, you know, Southern Harmony was like our reaction to shake your moneymaker. That's normal thing. When you have one record, you want to go, you want to show that you're better or different or over here as opposed to over there. Right. And and that makes perfect sense for a second album. And and we did, a, that was a great, I thought that was a great record and a perfect example of all the right ways to not repeat yourself. But the, but the stuff we did, um, that, that session we did in new Orleans, to me, that was just this whole another lane of, Holy shit, look at where we are right now. And, you know, like you read about, you know, Zeppelin, they, they, in the stones bands back in the day, you didn't, book a studio for three months and go make a record you went in on days off on your tour and did a song at a time and you just were constantly recording new songs and at the end of the day you when it's time to turn one in you go okay what's what are the best 10 songs what are the best 12 songs we got 24 of them I, you know again i would have always preferred that because i i thought going on a day off on tour into studios you're just the band's never going to be better than that right. you're playing gigs every night you get a day off you load in it's just a, it's just an afterthought that's why I think that stuff we do with Brendan just feels as good as it feels. It doesn't sound perfect. You know, the vocals aren't great because they were just scratch vocals. Chris wasn't thinking it was an album. Nobody was. But that's the kind of thing that, you know, we drove away from New Orleans listening on the bus, looking at each other going, shit, did we just start a record? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I always wished we had, but we didn't. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Brendan, Brendan has just a very, and again, my personal taste on how I like to work, you know, Bud's all about, turn on the lights, plug shit in and go, you know, like yeah. the less you think about it, you, you know, you do what you got to do to find the right mood. But when it's there, let's just roll tape, man. Let's just make something happen. Right. Um, and I think that, and I, and this is all just opinion. I thought that was when we were at our best. Right. I didn't think the black crows were a band that, uh, that overthinking was ever a benefit to. Well, there was a great, um, live recording of you guys doing uh, it's on YouTube it's a performance of you guys doing uh, exit just the energy the raw energy is there uh, mm-hmm. every everything you could tell of the song excited you and it was yeah. and it, it, you could always tell with the band and you were bringing up you know Zeppelin 2 was recorded largely on the road in 1969 yeah. in 69 yeah the first record came out in January and that was yeah. out like in the fall Right. And it was recorded in piecemeal, like in different studios yep. across America. And yeah. the interesting thing about that is, is that you guys were an, an exception to a lot of different bands in the 90s in the sense that you kind of woodshedded your songs and then would play them live. Um, not a lot of bands were doing that at the time. It was generally mm. rigid set, then go out. And then you guys would work in like uh, nonfiction, like into a Saturday Night Live yeah. performance or something like that. And the interesting thing about that is that it really lends itself to, uh, uh, I think, tight songs, tight songs that have been obviously thoroughly worked through. So you don't have to go to a rehearsal studio for a, a month, two months before you start mm-hmm. recording an album. Um, I think that's one of the better things you guys did in, in the 90s, at which I think, well, even throughout the rest of the career of the Black Rose was you being able to do that sort of thing. Do you think that sort of thing kind of defined your sound more than maybe the creative quote unquote writing process of just the Robinson's woodshedding is maybe you guys getting out there live and just getting the song right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, my opinion, I, I think that the strength of the band was the chemistry between all the players. I mean, that was the best thing. And I I've said, I always thought we were a, a great band with good songs. And, and I think, I think we had great songs. I, I think that across the board, what we'll be remembered as is hey, good songs, but man, that band was amazing. Yeah. Um, and, and I, th- but I think that the songs that I do, I think the songs we wrote while we were touring were generally always better than what we would then get home and then walk into a rehearsal room for six weeks and write new ones. You know, they'd come up with new ones. And it's, it's not that this necessarily the songwriting the bare bones songs aren't necessarily better, but the entire vibe, the vibe, you know, again, at our strength, it was about the vibe that band could create this, this extra element, you know, the seventh man, if you will, you know, like there's six of us, but then there's this thing that happens. And I think that that's just easier to reach when you're on the road, when you're, when you're playing four or five nights a week, and then you're, you know, putting songs together, soundcheck and trying them out live. I mean, we just found this great routine early in the shake your moneymaker tour we started doing that and we had a bunch of songs that we wrote on that tour 
that didn't make Southern Harmony. Mm-hmm. And I was okay with that. But the ones we were writing on Southern Harmony, I thought were up to snuff. Like they were good, you know, Exit and Furious again. There is songs like that, Bewildered. I thought those were as good as anything we recorded. So why wouldn't we keep those around? Um, right. You know, but I, I, it's it's a it's hard to, you know, when you start pulling things out and trying to look at these things in a linear fashion, it can be a little stale. But suffice to say, I think that the best service to the songs that, that Chris and Rich wrote was the band in the middle of a touring situation. Right. I just think everything fell together. And, and that goes for them too. I mean, they were, it, it's not just the, it's not like the band and then they're a separate thing. I'm saying all six people were just primed in a way in the middle of a tour that you just can't recreate after you've been, you know, sitting in a, in a rehearsal room for six weeks, putting together new songs. There's just no way to capture that same vibe. And, and I mean, I think it's pretty clear that Chris wasn't interested in having that vibe for the third record. So we didn't, right. but you know, that's, this is just one guy's opinion. I felt like that's where we should have been going. And I felt that Brendan O'Brien would have captured that without any problems. I think he would have been, uh, we could have made a really, really great uh, rock record with, with Brendan. Right. And I, I agree completely. Actually, you and I are simpatico on that because just based on any, you know, as a Crows, a nerdy Crows fan, you obviously, you hear this stuff coming out you know through the years of various trading circles and it it is it's interesting to look at the 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 progression of the band and then how different it sounded 94 (laughs) um which is both good and bad Uh, i think mostly i think to be honest with you i I, mork is a very mature album uh yeah i think it's a great record and and actually i think uh it it really is representative of probably where the band was eventually going to be in the subsequent years but I, will... I, I don't, I mean, I, I really, I mean, I say that I think we should have done that, but that's just a, it's a passing thought that at the time I didn't even dwell on because there right. was enough that was actually happening. <laughs> you know, there, this is pointless to speculate on all the could have been's when what actually happened is a pretty compelling story. And it was a pretty full-time job at, in real time. Right. You know, there, there, there was, like I said, I, I dug Amorica. I didn't care for tall very much, but I was thrilled with Amorica. Right. I mean, I, I, I think I, I, everybody was, I had a, I thought Amorica was just a whole different, again, like that was just a whole different lane than we had been on with either of the first two records. I, I was thrilled with it. Well, it's interesting. Cause I, I look at that time and coming back, retreating to the uh, Southern harmony tour, high as the moon. The only time I've ever been annoyed with you guys was when you skipped Denver in, in that tour. And I, on the back of my mind, I was grumbling because I thought it was because of, of, of Chris's incident uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> at the Seven Eleven. I was like, oh God, that's why. But that's the only time I was because, and that's just a selfish fan thing because, you know, when you're a, or a teenager and, you're, and your favorite band skips your town, you're like, God damn. Sure, <laughs> of course. Um, but a lot of things were happening that year in 93. Coverdale Page canceled their tour. Uh, Deep Purple canceled. Their, their, it was a weird time. It was a very weird time. And that, and, and that has caused me to think about what's going on now with the lack of touring, the lack of mm-hmm. ability to see an audience, the, all of that going on at the same time. And it makes me, makes me wonder, as someone who has done a ton of concerts uh, through your in, entire career, going back 30, more than 30 years, has this, has this, Will your approach be, I want to get out there and play live to as many people as possible whenever I can? Or have you taken a step back and think, man, it's been nice to have a break from not doing the rigors of the touring? I haven't had much of that just because I had had a break for a few years before, you know, like, uh, you know, 16, 17 and 18. I didn't do anything um, uh, on the road. So I was totally jacked to have a really busy 2020 with Trigger Hippie. Um (laughs) But but also because I had just been through a few years, I, I probably didn't hit me as hard as it has a lot of people. I mean, I I had just come out of a period of time where I was not touring, so to shut it all down just as we were getting started probably wasn't as uh, immediately viscerally impactful on me as it is for so many of my friends. Um, you know, I, yeah, I want to get out and play as many shows as we possibly can, just like everybody else. I think people need to prepare themselves for a whole hell of a lot of long encores because every band on earth is going to get on stage and be like, wait, 
we don't want to leave yet. You know what I mean? It's going to be, it's going to be a, it's, it's going to be a a feeding frenzy for sure for, for fans, but for the, for artists alike, you know, everyone's, everyone's just so over this, you know, the climbing the walls was done by August ever since it's just been trying to keep everybody's heads out of the ditch. You know, it's a, a lot of a lot of grief and a lot of uh, you know it's been a very troublesome year for for a whole lot of people in this industry. And it's hard to kind of describe the the, the transition to go from everyone touring everywhere to nothing, and even for the the, the viewing public, it's it impossible. Is, yeah, it, it even for me, it's just as a member of the viewing public, it is weird to not have to be able to go to a show. Oh, there's always shows. There's always a show. I think, you I think know. hey, you know, I think I've thought more about seeing a show than playing a show, honestly, because right. it's like I the whole time I wasn't touring, I was still going to gigs all the time. Like just walking into all the different venues in Nashville that I go see shows. That's just a such a part. I still get excited to go see a gig. You know, I'm just I'm, I'm still just a fan who when I'm going to see somebody, I'm like, oh, come on, man, this will be great. You know, and that vibe, it's a different it's a it's an entirely different approach. I mean, to say touring's done, I'm not sitting at home like like to for Trigger Hippie to be on the road. There's a flow to the day, which is you have a drive, you're in a dressing room, you're doing all these things before you play a gig. Well, all that's removed. But as a fan, yeah, I wake up, I have my coffee, I sit around the house. I mean, that part of my life hasn't changed except for the part where I then leave to go see a gig in a weird way. Like I'm, I still, you know, I, I, I just, that, that buzz of being, I, I spent so many years where I didn't even go see live music because I just didn't have a chance to, like I would have liked to, that when I got back into just going to see gigs a few times a week, it was just so thrilling for me. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's just been fantastic to live in a you know because everybody in nashville's just there's someone playing here every night right and to have a few years where i was just going to see gigs and gigs and gigs it was just great i loved it and i'm you know i so so i've i've i think i'm more on a day-to-day basis that still is something i'm just like oh, i cannot wait to get out and see a band i mean the mm-hmm. second trigger hippie gets together to rehearse and put and has a show booked which and there's a you know offers are coming in we're going to start playing shows this summer as soon as we get that up and running, I'll lose my mind. But it's just easier not even to think about it. It's just, it's just that's just a door that got shut. Well, you know, you know that I'll be front and center at that at your if you ever make it out this way. Uh, that'll be that'll be great. Um, uh, it would be great. You know, our our focus for what we were doing for the first part of 2020, we were by design. We were just staying east of the Mississippi. Basically, it was like let's just you know, we've, we're starting from scratch basically with that second record. So we had to, we were just building up and the whole plan was 2020 is going to be, you know, just, just working in all these inroads here. And then 21 we'll start heading West with, you know, festivals and different routings, blah, 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 blah. And of course the whole thing's back to square one, but eventually the, it will happen. You know, that band's going to get to Denver. Um, I, I, I've, this has been, I, I wanted to ask you this the last time on the, when I had you on last time. And uh, first of all, uh, I'm still waiting for the wide release of your movie, Safe and Comfortable, uh, that Johnny talked about. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I, I saw that recently. Someone that, that was tweeted at me and I, I was like, what the hell is this? And, yeah. <laughs> well, that was the, that was, I think, MTV's, uh, you were, it was the Sometimes Salvation was, video, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And was that, I've been meaning to ask you, you guys are standing there on the street, you, you, Mark and uh, Johnny, and did that guy talking to you guys, was that, was that a guy, just a guy that came up to you and just started talking to you? Oh yeah. Yeah. That would have just been, yeah. (laughs) I was like, Oh my God, that's just some random dude talked to you on the street. Yeah. We're like, we're in a big trailer, you know, one of those bounder (laughs) RV things. And so we step out and look like that. Everybody's like, who are these people? You know, it's just how it goes. Um, I haven't seen that sometimes salvation video on forever, but you know, the, there's a, there's, there's shots of the band, like on this rooftop in New York, Chris singing. And then you just have these glimpses of the other band members. And then there's a, the storyline follows a, a young woman and who's spiraling out of controlled addiction. That's Sophia Coppola is, is who's in that video. Oh, I forgot that was her. That's right. Yeah. Wow. 
Wow, that's it, it, like it, I've always loved that video and Chris wearing the mm -hmm. uh, the black feathers and stuff. And I I thought that was that was actually a, a clever video. He's got the the early Chris beard. Um, it, it, it's it's interesting because I look at that period and that's when I saw a lot of you guys on mm -hmm. uh, MTV. Um, you guys were pretty pretty much there a lot of from between the mood the uh, the video awards, uh, obviously the videos you were doing, and then you guys did Spring Break in 93 uh yeah and that's one of my favorite performances you guys ever did of remedy as it's a okay. really great sweaty version of remedy do you have any yeah. memory of that of that show yeah yeah well it came after we had been stuck in hartford for a few days there was mm. this blizzard of the century that hit <laughs> like literally it was the biggest snowstorm in a hundred years we wow. played it we played it uh uh, Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, and walked off stage one night. And we were driving to Hartford, Connecticut, and we walk off stage, and the bus driver, and then the crew bus driver, and the truck driver, like everybody's like, "We got to hustle, we got to hustle, we got to get in front of this storm. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming." And everybody, there was this thing of they had to break down that set and load up the truck and get on the bus as soon as possible. And like our driver was like, "You guys aren't hanging, we're on the road." So we loaded up pretty quick and hit the road. And we drove to Hartford and it was, you know, good, good. We got there at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. And all just went to our rooms and there's not a snowflake to be seen. And I remember going to sleep at like as the sun was coming up, basically. And then I woke up at noon or one o'clock and my phone message is, you know, the red phone button. You know, it's like you have a message like you used to call the front desk, you know. Right. And I called the front desk and they said, you know, call Mark, our tour manager. And I called him and he was like. Uh, tonight's show is canceled tomorrow night's show is canceled and we're trying to get out of here and I was like what are you talking about and he goes look out your window and I got out and I looked out the window and in the six <laughs> or seven hours I've been asleep like like 96 feet of snow had fallen in Hartford, oh Connecticut I mean it was just shut down oh my and God. and the Jayhawks were out with us and they were staying at a hotel up the street and for three days um, there was like one little sidewalk that you could traverse from our hotel to their hotel and we literally nobody could leave town uh on the ground or by air and so we canceled both nights. we had to reschedule for later but so two nights at this theater in hartford were out wow. and then we had like a day off or two before the daytona beach spring break and the whole thing was it immediately just turned into well are we going to even be able to get to daytona in a few days and so while everybody else was figuring that out we just we just had a few days where we would wake up and walk to the Jayhawks hotel because it was attached to a pool hall and we would just shoot pool and, and listen to music and drink beer all day and night at their hotel and then walk back to, you know, ours. Wow. And uh, so all that to say, we got out of there and flew straight to Daytona and landed. And then the gig was that day. Like we, we got a morning flight and got there and had very little time and then just went out and knocked that set out. Wow. And then, stayed overnight and then all went, we had a break so like we were home the next morning everybody flew home the next morning wow but it was cool that was the first time i saw stone temple pilots were on that as well mm -hmm. and i saw a couple of their songs and i was like I, I dug you know i was like man that's cool that's a good band um i don't i don't remember meeting them or hanging out with them at all but i, I remember watching them and thinking they were pretty cool I would say it was interesting and i, I want to say lenny kravitz was there too but maybe yeah. i'm making that up yeah i think he was I think he was, and it was, it was, it was just a good, good performance. I, what was it? The, the, the guy, headbangers ball guy, uh, Ricky uh, Rackman, Ricky Rackman was, was, yeah, uh, baby. <laughs> introduced well, so the, the, I saw no speak, no slave from that recently. And it's, it is, it's just, it's almost like you can tell we showed up that day after a few days in the snow and we didn't have time to think, you know, like we are, are, we had great gigs when nothing went right. You know what I mean? When we showed right. up right before the set time and, the PA was a little wonky or it sounded like shit. You know, when you take away all the comforts, you know, we always found ourselves in those moments. And, yeah. and, and we were aware of it at the time. I mean, I used to just, if we hadn't been working on new music at Soundcheck, we, we, I always said we should just stop soundchecking. That's where all of our fight, the fights start there. Right. And then they lead over to the gig and, and we would get on stage at Soundcheck for at least an hour every day. And it's focused thinking and, playing new parts and playing along and right. you know you get away from it for a few hours but the gigs where we didn't soundtrack anytime we rolled right into a building 10 minutes before downbeat 
I, I swear to you, 99% of the times that happened, the show was great. That's uh, that is amazing. I did not know the. I just I just that. always felt like the band had a visceral, a real vibe. Like yeah. like we just had a vibe when left to our own devices. And 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 anytime we tried to fuck with that, it just it, we could still be really good. But I just think that there was a, I, I just felt a spark, a charge in the air that was there when when just when we just had nothing but us, you know, when it was just us doing what we did. I, I'll, I'll be I'll be honest with you, and I've always had an admiration for your ability to, uh, especially the in the entire band, I guess, is to memorize or play all these freaking songs that you guys had to play. I mean, you, obviously, if you get into two thousand five six, you're playing you have a different set list every night. I mean, mm-hmm. how many songs did you have to like learn prior? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> well, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't do a whole lot of that before a tour. We were, we were doing that at soundcheck, you know, we were learning covers at soundcheck and it was like a, a point of pride to play a song at soundcheck for the first time and then put it into the set that night uh, with mixed results. Obviously, you know, that's a, it's a strange point of pride when people are paying money to come see a band they like to go, we'll show you, we're going to play a song we've never played before. You know, it's not necessarily <laughs> what the audience is all looking for. Some people are, and some people aren't. And, and again, when you knock it, when you, when you do it well, it's great. And then sometimes when you have a train wreck on stage, then you're like, maybe we should have taken another day with this one, you know, but uh, you know, it's, it's at, uh, to, to your point, I always felt in those situations, I had the easiest job because I mean, I, you know, it's all the same key to the drummer. Right. Um, you know, bass player hits one wrong note at a turnaround and the whole audience knows it. You know what I mean? Like I could always just, if, if I'm, if I don't know where something's going, if I just keep playing a straight beat, it's, it's almost like everyone else screwed up. The drummer was on it. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of tricks you learn when you're playing extemporaneously that everybody knows how to, everybody knows how to float through an upcoming shift, you know, like, I'm not sure maybe, Oh, there it is. Okay. And you know, you learn all those things. Uh, but to me, it was always, it was always, but I do, I do have a, I, I did have a good sense. I mean, I mean, I could play a song once and then turn around an hour later and re- re- remember it. Like I might not, I might not remember it the next day, but my short term memory retention for those things was pretty, was pretty sharp. Well, I, I will be honest with you. One of the, and, 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 and learning from your book, the context of this was even be- was even more striking because you coming in completely I mean, basically, from at least from the interpretation that I'm getting, is that you came into that uh, tabernacle gig in 2005 as like completely just came in and started drumming. I mean, do I have that yeah. wrong? I mean, that just seems- oh no, I, I flew down there that morning. Wow! And we we checked, and it's not like you, and it's not like the soundtrack is going to be full on. It like here's a set list. Do you? do you know all you remember all these you know it was like that like do you remember all these right and i was like um and i looked and i was like i i remember we opened with virtue and vice and i said well hang on let's let's go through that one once mm-hmm. and it's like low volume kind of ha- like and it's just all about me getting the arrangement making sure um but yeah we just i just looked down the set list and read, there was a few things where i was like hang on can we just play this chorus so i get a turn around because you can't simulate i knew that it, it was impossible to, it was pointless to try to play it at soundcheck for real. It was just make sure I know where I'm going. And then when the adrenaline's there and when the whole band's up and running, it'll be fine. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't think I, I didn't have too many issues with anything. You know, there was a few songs they'd started playing that, that the black crows had never done before. Like we did don't do it, you know, uh, right. but we had never done that before. So, you know, I just went upstairs and listened to the, uh, the, the, rock of ages version and i was like is this the arrangement and they're like pretty much and i was like okay well i'm just gonna start i'll just start with the beat y'all you know point at me when those stops come you know and that's that's how we did it wow that's amazing because i I can't i can't fathom because i I played guitar for you know in and out of i recorded an album done all of that stuff and i can't even fathom coming in like that because it would it would be absolutely overwhelming yeah well confidence i mean paul stacy was always one he, he I can't remember who originally, I want to say Miles Davis, but you know, it it could have been, you know, any number of people, but you know, music is 99% confidence or something like that, which it's, 
yeah. you know, it's like everybody's good. You know what I mean? Like everybody, everybody up on everybody that's in a band that's touring, you know, everybody can play. Like that's just what it is. Um, and I learned this as a local musician very early on. Everybody, in fact, I've, I've spent my life watching drummers who technically could, you could make a strong argument, could drum circles around me. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I was so aware of at an early age, at an early age as a drummer with a, with a band was, well, as long as you know where you're going and you don't waver, you know, a lot of the things that the band knows are mistakes no one else will pick up on. Right. You know, what struck me about bands when I'd go see a band, oftentimes it wasn't even, man, that song was amazing. It was just, I wanted to be a part of that. Uh, uh, look at those four dudes who were just on it together. You know, I just wanted to be inside that kind of a machine, that kind of a vibe, you know, like that, that, that combustion engine that's just rolling. You know, I saw the, there's a band called the Godfathers that had one, one record birth school work death was an album and a song mm-hmm. in the late eighties. And I went to see them and it was just so, I love them so much. They weren't great players. Like necess- I mean, none of them was a, you know, a virtuoso. The drummer was so rickety. My buddy Andrew said, like, that's a guy, that's a train car that's just trying to fall off the track the whole show, and it just won't do it, you know? And, um, but they were just together. They just had this thing. Like, they were not lacking for confidence at all. Like, mm-hmm. and if they did fuck up, they were, they didn't care. It was just like, man, we're putting this vibe, this, this thing that came off that stage. And, and, and I've seen a ton of gigs like that, but that's just one that comes to mind where, um, you know, Nick, my Nick and Trigger Hippie wrote a thing about all of his favorite, some of his favorite albums. And, and he, I just remember reading this in an interview or, or I read an article where he had been asked about like records that changed his life. That's what it was like. Who were the 10 albums? Right. And he said, he said, you know, Bob Dylan taught me, you don't have to be a good singer to be a great singer. And Right. You know, I just always like, that's a perfect way to say that, you know, and the Godfathers, that was like a, they weren't a good band, but they were a great band, if you will. And that the vibe and the energy. So to me, like that was something I was always looking for. And then to me, what the Black Crows had was that on top of being great players, you know what I mean? We did have like a lot of tangibles, but, but, but when you have all the tangibles and then you add that intangible thing, you know, that's when you're just, that's, that's when you're like on a different level, you know what I mean? Well, I I associate it with the absolute reckless confidence that the Faces had playing live. Mm -hmm. Because they were a band that was like, you could see that at any moment they could fall apart. (laughs) At any moment, like just like where they're playing, but they didn't. I mean, a few people said this to us over the years. People like like producers or just friends that were other musicians. You know, like there was a, I'm trying to think of a specific example, but I think that we got a little ahead of our skis a few times just because we were such a good band that we could take a song that really wasn't finished and make it seem great. Like the reason we were always so good with covers, like, you know, the song was, a song's great and we can just add our own flavor to it. And it's like, you know, we're a band that people constantly said, every time you take a cover, it feels like it's your song, you know, like that's a vibe. And I think that it was real easy for us to lose sight. Some of our own songs this one's not quite up to snuff, but you know what? It's fucking great because look at how we're playing it. You know what I mean? Right. And, and, and I think that that's, it was impossible to see in time. You know, right. like I told you before, I loved Demorica when it came out. Hell, I loved all of our records when they came out. I, I was just in that bubble. Right. Um, my discernment suffered greatly over the years because you're just in your own world. Right. Uh, and I'll be the first to admit that. Now, and you know, when you go get away from something 20, 25 or 30 years, it's much easier to look back and listen and go, Oh fuck, man. That's, you know, in both ways, that's way better than I even remembered or could have worked a little better on that one, you know, but, but in the moment, yeah, you talk yourself into, or you just literally believe your own mystique, you know, but because we did have one, I mean, it was easy to believe it because it was on display every night. Oh, it's just, I, I, I have an appreciation for it and I have appreciation for you guys. And I've, I've taken a different look at this recently because maybe the pandemic has forced everyone, I think, to maybe retrain their thoughts on things. And mm-hmm. I'm looking at your period after Mark and uh, uh, Johnny left. And then I'm looking at specifically Lions. And one thing that did occur to me 
is that while I didn't necessarily give it the appreciation that it probably deserved at the time, um, I, I will, I will be acknowledged to you after I read that story in your uh, book about Jimmy Page and what happened subsequently after or during the tour in regards to Rich, I find it ironic that he didn't want Jimmy involved. And yet, if you listen to Lyons, his Jimmy's influence is immense on that record, mm-hmm. specifically in Cypress Tree, uh, which is like, yeah, that's like that could be on a Led Zeppelin album. At least that's the way I've always looked at that. And it, and it's mm-hmm. interesting to me looking back at it, though, the, the greater appreciation I had for what you were doing at the time. And quite frankly, I guess it made maybe a greater appreciation for Rich. Uh, and because it sounds to me like he had a big part, huge part in the way that I think that I, ended up. Right? Yeah, I think I, I, I think I say this in the book, you know, Lyons was the best example of Rich. Uh, that He was on, on, on absolutely on fire at that period. Um, and I don't think there was an ounce of consciously taking Paige on. Like he wasn't saying like, let me incorporate some Jimmy. It's just inevitable when you're playing that music and listening to it and playing with Jimmy, of course, things are going to filter in. He's, you know, his radar as a musician is taking in things. And for the better part of a year, he was taking in a lot of Led Zeppelin in a very different way than before, because he actually had to play it every night. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, there's a song that we did a, just a loose demo of that never went anywhere. I I mean, I can hear the music. I always have to think about what, um, uh, things a pretty girl will make you do was the mm. lyric mm. but if you find that somewhere i mean i know it's it's out there that the guitar part in that is all super zeppelin you know yeah it's like a b-bender thing and then both parts the the descending chorus and the verse groove that is that's super page like you know and mm-hmm. i love that thing um what's the other song we did so, it's funny someone on twitter asked me what i thought of a song recently and i was like i haven't heard it in forever and he sent me a link all this shit's on youtube and i listened and i listened to it and i was like yeah god that would have been great if we'd ever just really fully flushed it out um last time last time again no this Uh, is the last time yeah last yeah yeah. last yeah you know though that that's just two examples but at that time i think rich just had a he was just a geyser in 2000 and 2001 with great ideas and i don't think that he was uh, I don't think his songwriting partner stepped up uh, as he would have in the past and was would, did much with that material. I, and again, in hindsight, at the time, I thought, yeah, this is all this all sounds pretty cool, you know. I mean, I never, I, I could never talk myself into Ozone Mama, but you know, for the rest of it, it was, it was. I thought there was some great stuff there. But I think if you think about the the stuff that's on Lions, you want to talk about a record that Brandon O'Brien could have produced the living dog shit out of, you know, like real focus, those arrangements, get those sounds, but that's not where our heads were at the time. I mean, too, it's also like, well, that it actually wouldn't have worked because of who we are and who Brendan is, but in a fictional bubble of, well, you put these elements together, you would think it could. I mean, you know, I think, I think Lions was a, was a, certainly didn't lack for ambition and right. it was a swing and not necessarily a miss, but it wasn't exactly what we were thinking it was. Well, it didn't connect because it didn't sound like Chris's was using his whole ass. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. it, it seemed very half-assed of Chris, particularly o, uh, Ozon Mama. I, 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 I'm a woman with you yeah. on that. It was, I, it, 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 it you know, and like weird. a song like, yeah. a song like soul singing, you know, that was an original, that was more of an up-tempo that sounded, that was almost kind of like a over the hills and far away kind of vibe. And right. the first, the first lyric was something about I'm on my way. can't see tomorrow if, unless for today, you know, it's something mm-hmm. a little more ethereal, I guess, but it was, I, I liked it. It was metaphorical, blah, blah, blah. But I thought it was a good set of lyrics. And then the more we worked on it, it just lost that original thing. It turned into what soul singing became, mm-hmm. but then soul singing never found itself until 2005. In, in my mind, you know, it was, it was a high, it was two different. I think for lions, we did an up-tempo version and we did a down without a drum kit, just percussion version. And we ended up editing those two together for what's on the album or mm. something pretty close to that. Um, oh. But I just mean that song never found its true self until years later when we were touring back after the break in 2005. Well, and it's, in it's my funny. opinion, it, well, it's funny. No, that, that I'm, I'm right in the line with you because um, 
I, I believe uh, uh, I heard a recent interview with Mark where he said, well, I had, he was talking about soul singing in 2005. He says, well, I had nothing to do with the song. He says, I just had to make up my own part, basically is what he said yeah. when he was yeah. making it on it. Because when you guys played it in 2005, that jam in the middle was just amazing. That was, <laughs> that was one of your best jams. Yeah, well, I when, I, when I came back to the band, they'd already worked that out. So, I mean, the first time we, that's when we had the sound check. You know, they were, or they played me a tape. They said, hey, we got a jam in the middle of soul singing out. And I remember going, soul singing? What the fuck <laughs> you got a jam in that for? And then I heard it and I was like, well, this is pretty cool, actually, you know? And, yeah. um, you know, it, wor- it, 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 it worked and it was, it, it, it made sense. And I think that, you know, it wasn't too long before it, it I, I always look forward to it. I, if something cool is going to happen there every night. And I, I think that was a really, that was one of the better uh, happy surprises of that era for sure. One of the questions, speaking of 2005, one of the questions that uh, I've heard, I've seen, and um, uh, my, my friend Drew has, uh, has posited to me and to, to maybe ask you is, um, obviously there was an almost of having Neil Kaysall uh, involved in the 2005 reunion, which obviously this is pre- Neil Casal, yeah, yeah, Kassel, yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. I very I liked his work in the Cardinals. Uh, obviously, you mm-hmm. guys had, had known him. Have you have you ever thought about what it would have sounded like with Neil in the group? No, no. <laughs> I was happy Mark was back. I didn't. I didn't give that a second thought. Well, when they were talking to Neil, I wasn't a part of it. You know, what yeah, I mean that yeah. that that. You know, not unlike the tour that's going out this year. It's got nothing to do with me, so I'm not. It's right. not. It's not something that I'm putting. In 2005, I I wasn't thinking about that um, on any level. And then when they got Mark back, I, when 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 Mark went back, I, that's when I started thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And. It's it's interesting, and to think and about. you know, and it's for 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 a few reasons. One, it's like it sh- it should be Mark. I mean, that's like, oh, okay, that this is actually going to be the Black Crows as I see them, right? And then it, it just what that says, not even beyond his his what he brings musically, the idea that you know there was a there was a recognition of um, oh, actually, it does matter who the other people are to do this right. You know, that's what that signaled to me, and so that changed that that definitely opened a portal in my mind of well, maybe this will happen. Well, you got you that 0506 run is my what right up there with uh, the 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 uh, gigs I saw in '95 and '96 with you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, we had we had some. Um, there there were nights that I think that were as good as any as anything we'd ever. Yeah, yeah, those were as good as any. You know, in 05 and 06. 05 by 06 it was getting a little tired, mm-hmm. but 2005 had some. By when we hit the fall. Um, of oh five that we were we were cooking well i'll i was at what is lovingly titled the uh the last waltz and that is your red rocks gig in uh 2006 and i do recall oh, okay i do recall in hindsight because that was the last gig of the well that's the last one with mark and uh and and ed mm-hmm. and i do recall uh in hindsight and i don't think i was aware of it at the time i do recall that there was a there was a bit of exhaustion I, it did look like there was a this is the last <laughs> gig of the tour we're done mm-hmm. and not thinking any way that they would just not continue on like with that tour that you're supposed to have like a month later um right so did you feel it at by red rocks at that time that like oh yeah no that was a brutal that that summer leg was brutal um ed ed was in terrible shape um ed had some really really tough times on that tour um and for that matter mark was not in good shape either you know and everybody was just it was just the uh i think a whole lot of uh, a lot of uh, for, a lot of Pavlovian things all kicked in, and suddenly it felt like 1997 again. It's the easiest way to say it. It was like, holy shit, we're just reliving history here. Right. This is exactly the same. Um, and it was just sad. It was tired and sad by the time that tour ended, um, which sucks because I loved the Truckers. I thought they were a lot of fun, and I loved the record they were touring on at the time. Right. And Robert Randolph's a great player. You know, it should have been a much more uplifting vibe for a summer tour, and it just wasn't there. Right. And then, and then knowing that we were going to be out for the fall too, you know, um, 
you know, it's kind of like, this would be great if this was the end of this year, but, but, you know, we had that tour, we had that fall tour, you know, that, that tour, that, that year was lined out all year. It was going to be a whole lot of shows. And, you know, if, if I I think it's pretty clear looking back that it was, uh, we should have just said, Hey, let's take the fall off. Let everybody just go home and chill. But you know, that was just never something we were ever good at was just admitting defeat. That's how we would have seen it. It wouldn't have been admitting defeat. It would have been admitting, you know, it's fine to quit something if it sucks. <laughs> it's, you know, you 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 got to put your shoulder to the wheel when it makes sense. But there's there's nothing stronger than a bunch of people looking at each other going, "Hey, wait, this isn't what we had in mind. Let's all stop and then make sense again." Because that the, I think the band in 2005 did make a real. Everybody made a real concerted effort to to do it better and do it smarter and just be better all around as a band and as people. And by the summer of 06, that was just gone. Well, and it's, you know what, to me, that's the end of probably what I term that is the Black Crows. Uh, and mm-hmm. even though 97 really was probably the, that end of that, but it really is by that point. Because, Sven, I mean, to Sven's credit, um, he's a, a terrific bass player. Sven is just yeah, he's amazing, monster bass player. Uh, different from Johnny. Johnny was more. I always thought Johnny was the rock star of mm-hmm. of the Black Crows. He just looked like a guy who needed to be yeah. a rock star band. Uh, and Sven is more of this play the bass. So I, I I get it. And you know, I guess one of the th- last things for me. And thank you for joining me again. Um, if you if you if you were to look back on, you know, certain opportunities that you had. Uh, one thing that has come up with me is that did you guys, uh, well, in, at least in the, uh, the 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 Woodstock sessions you did for the before the frost, mm-hmm. um, did you guys end up recording any songs with Levon while he was there? No, no, you didn't. Okay, he, no, he the last night we played in front of an audience. He came out at the very end and sat at a little uh, cocktail kit, and we just played a couple of blues covers. Oh, that's it. Oh, okay. Was that yeah? When you look back at that, um, because it, uh, before the frost, I, it, it's always been a kind of it mostly because of I ain't hiding. Uh, is is it's, <laughs> I always go eh, on it, but is that it, as the as the last recorded output from the Black Crows? Had you look back on that, or other than the obviously the Crowology, but I mean the, the last original material? Do you look back on that and think we could have done better, or do you think this was representative of where we are at the time? Oh, both. I mean, I, I, I say, I look back on, on just about everything we did and say we could have done better. I don't think Southern Harmony could change a thing about it. There's, there's something on every other record. Sure. You know, there's always a song that doesn't hold up as well as I thought, but like I said, there's always songs that hold up a lot better than I thought at the time too, you know? So it's both. I think the stuff at Levon's, I think, I mean, the band was playing really well. I mean, some of the tracks on there, I think, I think the just the tracks, the band, the vibe we caught on a few of those are just fucking fantastic. You know, I just think it's super groovy. You know what I mean? Really cool. And it was fun. I mean, I enjoyed all five of those nights with an audience in there. It was just great. You know, we were, again, it was like, that's us. You can't sugarcoat what you're doing when you're just playing instruments in front of people that are five feet away from you. Like, right. you know, we did have a little pressure on ourselves. Um, we did, and I think we responded, you know, I mean, when I look back now, my personal thoughts on that are, there's some really good songs. There's some songs that never needed to see the light of day. There's kind of a mixed bag, but the experience was really cool. I dug it. I mean, I, I really enjoyed, uh, that entire process. Um, I wish the record sounded as good to me now as the feeling I had making it, but I'll take it. You know, I mean, it was, a, it was an experience and it was a good one. And again, it was cool to, it was cool to spend time with Levon, of course. I mean, that's, you know, can't put a price on, on, on anything like that. You can't say if, if we had never even released the a record from those sessions, I would look back and go, man, that was fucking cool. You know what I mean? It's, it would be, it would be like the band album we made in 97. I loved every minute of that, you know, and it was all for naught essentially. Um, but it was just a great time to be in a band that was really good, you know? And I think that the, before the frost sessions, I think that was a really, really good band. And so that's always rewarding. You know what I mean? I, I had a good time playing that stuff. Well, it, uh, I just, it's so good. 
uh, on just like the vibe. And I would love to, I've never been up to Lee Von's Barn. One day, hopefully after things get better, maybe I will get up there because it's like a once yeah. in a lifetime kind of thing. So it's pretty uh, awesome. Well, Steve, thank you all for, thank you. Thank you all. Thank you for joining me uh, as always. You don't have to. Yeah, sure, man. I appreciate you making the time. So you, uh, you're no the worries, brother. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us. I'm happy to do it. And I'll, uh, I will certainly let you know when uh, when Denver's you know in the itinerary, oh, personal yeah, yeah. or other or or trigger hippie. I'll be I'll be up in front up front waving my arms and stuff. Hopefully he knows me. Beautiful. <laughs> okay, thanks everyone right, for dude. joining us. All right, Steve. See you, Steve.